Hear the word of the Lord this morning. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age? The child grew and was weaned, and on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had borne to Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. But God said to him, do not be so distressed about the boy and your slave woman. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I'll make the son of the slave into a nation also, because he is your offspring. Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went off and sat down about a bow shot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there, she began to sob. God heard the boy crying. And the angel God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. While he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife for him from Egypt. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his forces, said to Abraham, God is with you in everything you do. Now swear to me here before God that you will not deal falsely with me or my children or my descendants. Show to me in the country where you now reside as a foreigner the same kindness I have shown to you. Abraham said, I swear it. Then Abraham complained to Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized. But Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this. You did not tell me and I heard about it only today. So Abraham brought sheep and cattle and gave them to Abimelech and the two men made a treaty. Abraham set apart seven ewe lambs from the flock, and Abimelech asked Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs you have set apart by themselves? He replied, accept these seven lambs from my hand as a witness that I dug this well. So that place was called Beersheba because the two men swore an oath there. After the treaty had been made at Beersheba, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his forces, returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there he called on the name of the Lord, the eternal God. And Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines for a long time. Thus far the reading of God's word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let's pray and ask his blessing on the hearing of his word. Lord, we ask that this morning you would open our eyes, that we might behold wondrous things from your word. And Lord, that you would instruct us in the truth of your word, so that we might grow a heart of wisdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Waiting often becomes harder to do the more strongly you desire what you're waiting for. So for example, for me, I have no problem waiting for my next dentist appointment. 
I do not look forward to anything about that appointment. I, I don't want to be scolded every six months for not flossing while my gums bleed because I haven't flossed in six months. But I do have a problem waiting for things that I strongly desire. I have a problem waiting for dinner when I've skipped lunch or kids. I bet you have no problem waiting for your friend's birthday or your sibling's birthday. But I bet you have a lot of problem waiting for your own birthday to come. You probably ask your parents for a countdown every so often, how many days till my next birthday? You probably draw pictures or write lists and set them in places where your parents can see them so they know what you want for your birthday because you just can't wait for your birthday. I have come to to love learning and studying and reading, but I certainly never loved and do not love going to school. And I don't plan to ever go back. And by the laughs, I'm I'm guessing some of you can relate, which means you had no trouble waiting for the first day of school, but you had a lot of trouble waiting for the last day of school where you could finally sing that song from Alice Cooper, right? Waiting is harder the more eagerly we are anticipating what we are waiting for. And that truism has certainly demonstrated itself over and over again in the life of Abraham and Sarah. So far, what we've looked at is just a great saga of waiting and waiting and waiting. Because when we first met Abraham and Sarah back in Genesis 12, Abraham was about 75 years old and Sarah was about 65 years old and they were childless. They were childless, not for lack of desire. They desperately wanted a child. They were childless because Sarah was barren. And yet in her barrenness, a ray of hope breaks through in the form of a promise from God. Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a great nation. And through you, I'm going to bless the whole world. Well, the fulfillment of that promise assumed the fulfillment of what they'd been longing for, their very own child. Well, we're now on the precipice of Genesis 21. Sarah still has no child. And that promise from Genesis 12 was 25 years ago. 25 years they've been waiting. They've been made to wait so long that at one point, they momentarily gave up waiting on God and tried to fulfill God's promise through their own works by employing the Hagar method. That didn't go so well. They've been made to wait so long that at one point, when God reiterated the promise to them, both Abraham and Sarah laughed in God's face, saying, this is, this is unbelievable. I, I don't believe it. Well, finally, in Genesis 21, that ray of hope is going to become a reality. The laughter of unbelief that they laughed in God's face is going to turn into the laughter of rejoicing. And here's what the Lord is going to teach us through the events of Genesis 21. Despite our unbelief, and impatience with God, he is unfailingly faithful in all that he promises. Despite our our unbelief, our struggle to grab hold and keep waiting on his promises, he is unfailingly faithful to every single one of his words. So we're going to unpack in Genesis 21 what the unfailing faithfulness of God looks like for us in our lives. First, God's unfailing faithfulness must be the foundation of our joy. Generally speaking, you probably don't like it when someone says to you, I told you so. You probably like saying it sometimes, but you don't like it when it's said to you. Or you don't like it when someone says, you didn't believe me, but I was right. Well, in verse 1 and 2 of Genesis 21, we get an exception to that rule. 
This is a wonderful form of a divine, I told you so. You didn't believe me, but I was right. Look at verses one and two. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, the one. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised, verse two. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Three divine, I told you so's. Despite their unbelief, God was faithful to do as he said. Despite laughing off God's promises to his face, he fulfilled his word as he promised. Despite their sinful inability to see that God could do the impossible, God did the impossible at his time, in his time, according to his wisdom. What this shows us is that God's faithfulness is unfailing because it is not subject to the things that our faithfulness is subject to. It's not subject to circumstances. It cannot be obstructed by obstacles, and it is not nullified by human foolishness and sinfulness. Our faithfulness is fragile at best and needs to be nuanced and footnoted. God's faithfulness is invincible. When we depart the company of a friend and you're anticipating your next visit, the next time seeing them, you often say things like, hey, I'll see you next week or I'll see you on Sunday. But if you wanna be truthful, and theologically accurate, you always have to add, if the Lord wills. We are always subject to circumstances that we cannot control. So we have to use conditional phrases like, if the Lord wills. Despite my best efforts, when I was driving to preach for my friend in Port St. Lucie at one of his Sunday evening services, I'm a man who likes to be on time. You know, punctuality is next to godliness in, in my heart. But I had failed to factor in that day that a wildfire would be raging across I-95 southbound and northbound and traffic was in a dead stop and there was no turning around, there was no going forward. So I had to call my friend and say, I'm not gonna make it. You're gonna have to come up with a sermon in the next 15 minutes because I won't be there to preach. I ran into an obstacle that was outside of my control. I was obstructed by something that I had no power over, but not so with the Lord's faithfulness. There's never an obstacle that he has met that he is not in charge of. As R.C. Sproul said, in God's universe, there is no such thing as maverick molecules in God's universe. Or, when it comes to our faithfulness, our faithfulness is, is sometimes tempered by the people's responses that we're promising to be faithful to. Like parents with kids, sometimes you're like, I promise this, but this has not been a good day. We're, I don't think we're doing what I said we're gonna do. Thank God his faithfulness does not work like that. In the Christmas movie Elf, okay, I don't know why I'm bringing up Christmas, but in the movie Elf, Santa's sleigh is powered by the Christmas spirit in the heart of people. So when, of course, when Santa flies into New York, his sleigh isn't flying, right? There's no Christmas spirit in that place. But once a kid goes around and tells him about Santa, then all of a sudden the sleigh, the, the sleigh starts flying. Can you imagine if that's how God's faithfulness operated? That his faithfulness would only be as reliable and dependable as it was trusted and relied on by us. If if the, the car of God's faithfulness was fueled by the gas of our trust and reliability, you might as well hitchhike. You might as well find a new ride. That car is not going anywhere. But God is faithful despite our faithlessness. And we've seen that over and over again with Abraham and Sarah. And yet here he is doing as he said, despite their unbelief, despite their foolishness, despite their sinfulness. 
And that's why the faithfulness of God is the only stable foundation for our joy, because it's invincible. Speaking of joy, notice the response of Sarah to God's faithfulness in verses 6 and 7. Talk about someone who's happy for this Mother's Day occasion. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears me will laugh over me. She said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. So you take one of our, our senior saint couples in this. I'm not going to name any name. I don't want to get in trouble. And they come and they stand up here and they say, we're expecting another child. You would all laugh. You're laughing in your heart right now. That's what's going on here in this text. And Sarah is delighted. She is, she is happy that people are going to be laughing at her because she is laughing with joy. But nobody's laughing more than the Lord. The Lord gets the last laugh. He gifts Sarah a son, and he's laughing because guess what the son's name is? Isaac, which means he laughs. The Lord gets the last laugh. And he also gives Sarah a new kind of laughter. Before, her laughter was springing from a heart that was disappointed, that was discouraged, that had been eroded by the circumstances of life that had not been favorable to her. And now her laughter changes. The, the, it's a, not a minor chord laughter anymore. It's a major chord laughter now because her laughter springs from a heart that has tasted and seen that the Lord is faithful. Now, which form of Sarah's laughter best reflects your laughter? Are you generally and typically marked by a laughter of joy or a laughter of unbelief and cynicism or perhaps no laughter at all. You've forgotten how to laugh. Do you constantly find your heart inclined to believe that the Lord's promises are too good to be true? He could do it, but he probably won't. Or that the circumstances around you are too big to overcome, so he's not going to. It's been this way for too long, so it's pointless to hope for any change. The, the grip of sin is too tight. The backsliding is too much. So why expect God to give me any progress or victory? Well, dear Christian... The same faithful God who is faithful to Sarah is your God in Christ who is faithful to you. The same God who honored that promise to Sarah, overcoming every obstacle, every sinfulness and unbelief is our God in Christ. So has guilt robbed you of the joy of laughter? He is faithful and just to forgive us all of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Has slow progress in holiness and backsliding in a particular sin robbed you of the joy of laughter? He who began a good work in you is faithful and he will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Has concerns over the current cultural climate, where things are trending, where you think things are going, has that robbed you of the joy of laughter? Well, he is faithful and one day his kingdom will come and his will shall be done on earth as it is in heaven. One day, the kingdoms of this world and the kingdoms of our Lord and Christ shall be merged together and he will rule and reign over all. The unfailing faithfulness of the Lord must be the foundation of our joy. All other ground is sinking sand. Second lesson we learn from our passage is that God's unfailing faithfulness must be the object of our faith. So if you've learned anything so far in the study of the life of Abraham, it's that he is human like us. His faith, like ours, is prone to fickleness. 
He's like a college student on a weekend trying to make plans. He's just going back and forth. Which, which is the better plan? Or it falters so easily. It's like watching the stock market lately. It just, it just keeps going in the wrong direction. Other places. Abraham, one moment, is running into battle, outnumbered against a mighty king to rescue his stubborn nephew Lot. What courage. The next moment, he's cowardly standing before a mighty king with his wife, not under the threat of war, saying, meet my sister. He is human like us. But God has continued to demonstrate over and over again that those who trust him will never be ashamed or disappointed because he is unfailingly faithful. There are a number of ways that this is demonstrated in our passage. We're not going to touch all of them. It's too much. But let me note a couple of them where God's faithfulness is demonstrated to be the resting place for our faith. You see it demonstrated in the timing of the birth of Isaac. Look at verse 5 and verse 7. Verse 5, Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Then verse 7, and Sarah said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age? So these past 25 years, since Genesis 12, when we started this series, was God just stringing Abraham and Sarah along, making them wait for arbitrary reasons that really had had no point to them? But was God like the parent on Christmas Eve who tells their kids, don't get out of your rooms till 10 a.m.? Okay, you can't open presents till 10 a.m. Just because he likes to see them suffer as they wait to open their presents. No, God is not like that at all. As with all things that the Lord does, the time he chooses is wisely and purposefully chosen. So that when Abraham and Sarah, when they finally get to hold their son Isaac in their arms, they will know how they got this child. They will know when they look at their precious gift of grace in their arms, they will know that this is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now I know that the Lord can do all things and no promise of his will ever fail. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. As one of the hymn writers said, deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. That's what he was doing all those 25 years, working out his sovereign will in his timing according to his wisdom so that when all was said and done, we would say with the Apostle Paul, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. As we continue in our text, we also see that the conflict surrounding Ishmael and Isaac demonstrates that God's faithfulness must be the resting place for our faith. Look at verses 8 through 12. And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, which is Ishmael, whom she had born to Abraham, ESV says laughing, or the NIV says mocking or scoffing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So you see a major tension once again rising in the marital relationship between 
Abraham and Sarah. And reportedly, a lady once said to Winston Churchill, if you were my husband, I would put poison in your drink. To which Churchill said, lady, if you were my wife, I would drink it. <laughs> With all the conflict and issues between Abraham and Sarah, you, you wonder, and again, this is a recognition of their, of their humanness, you wonder if their relationship is getting dangerously close to exchanges like that uh, in their marriage counseling sessions. But they need to know that the conflict that is arising right now on the, on the verge of this, or on the outskirts of this promise that has been given to them is a mess of their own making. Ishmael is the son, as Sarah should remember, that was born out of her attempt to take matters into her own hands when she tried to accomplish God's promise by her own wisdom and works. And yet Isaac is the son that was born by God's promise, according to God's miraculous grace and his timing. So you have two sons occupying one space and there is conflict and tension. Well, the Apostle Paul, in Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 to 31, you don't have to turn there, I'm going to summarize it. He looks at these two sons who were born in very two very different ways and he sees them as representing two competing ways of how we relate to God in our relationship with him. So two sons born according to two very different ways representing two competing ways of how we relate to God in our relationship with him. Paul says that Ishmael is an allegory of those who try to relate to God through their own works and activities and accomplishments. Their favorite hymn is my hope is built on nothing less than my own man-made righteousness. To live as if you're standing before God is dependent on your works to God is a disastrous way to live. To, to live before God, not just if you're standing before him is based on your works, but if your identity is based on something other than the works of God, but your own works, is a very damaging way to live spiritually. For example, if you believe that your, your righteousness, your, your fundamental identity is found in how good of a mother you are, you will struggle to experience the freedom of assurance because you'll constantly be wondering one question all the time. Am I good enough? Am I a good enough? And you, you can fill in the blank. Or you'll constantly be whiplashing between pride when your kids represent your motherhood well or despair when they represent it poorly. Instead of living in the freedom of no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, you'll be constantly living in the low grade or high grade level of guilt because you did this. You, you yelled. You uh, disciplined out of anger. You, you broke the television as you, they wanted to not decide on what to watch or something. These are all hypothetical. <laughs> or you'll be living in the pride of knowing I thank God that I'm not like those other mothers who do those things that I had just previously mentioned. Instead of restfully parenting out of the freedom of knowing that your righteousness is found securely in Christ, you'll be anxiously parenting out of the insecurity of trying to establish and sustain and earn your own standing and identity before God. It's like, it's like trying to maintain a, a sandcastle as the high tide is coming in. It just doesn't, it doesn't work. It doesn't hold up. But Paul says... These two sons, there's, there's a better way. There's Isaac. Paul says that Isaac, the child born by promise, according to God's grace, is an allegory of that better way. Isaac represents those who live 
by grace alone, through faith alone, in what God alone accomplishes. He represents those who, rather than working and striving to earn their standing, rest and receive what God has done for them. One of their favorite hymns goes like this. My faith has found a resting place, not in my works or deeds. Christ is all the hope I have and all the hope I need. Paul says that living by faith in what God has done, living securely, rooting your identity, your standing and your hope there is freeing. It leads to ultimate and true freedom because instead of worrying about what others think about us, what our status is in the eyes of others, we rest securely knowing that God accepts us fully, perfectly, forever in Christ. You'll be freed from tirelessly trying to establish your own righteousness because you know that one has been established for you that will never change, will never falter, will never diminish because Christ has established one for you. All religions outside of Christianity, and ironically, especially the religion that claims Ishmael as one of their primary prophets, namely Islam, at their core are religions that make demands of you. Do, submit, work, be faithful. They are at their core graceless religions. But Christianity alone, at its core, makes a declaration to you. It is finished, done, fulfilled, accomplished on your behalf. Christianity is filled to the brim and overflowing with grace. But don't get me wrong, Christianity certainly makes demands. There are commands in Scripture. There are calls to obedience in Scripture. Take up your cross. Follow me. Love one another. But the obedience of a Christian is of a different kind from all other religions. The obedience of a Christian is not a request to God by which we say, please show me your favor. Please be kind to me. Please bless me. Please give me grace. The obedience of a Christian is instead a demonstration of gratitude in which we say to God, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. That is the difference. Well, one other place where God displays his unfailing faithfulness is when he delivers Hagar and Ishmael from their distress in verses 14 to 21. I'm not going to walk through it. I'm just going to kind of fly over it. But Hagar sent away with Ishmael into the wilderness. And when they've reached the breaking point, the, the waters run out, the supplies are gone, exhaustion, starvation, thirst are setting in, the Lord hears and he responds to her cry. This is an echo of Genesis 16. A similar thing happened. And the Lord honors the promise that he had previously made to Hagar and Ishmael in Genesis 16. He says, even though Hagar and Ishmael are not part of that specific special line of promise through Isaac, God says, I'm, I'm still going to bless you in a general faithfulness, common grace sort of way. So what God does when he rescues and delivers Hagar and Ishmael and he blesses them is he shows them what some theologians have called general faithfulness or common grace. And although not everyone will experience the special grace, the covenant faithfulness of God like Isaac experiences, everyone will to some measure and degree experience the general faithfulness and common grace and goodness of the Lord. So you can distinguish it between the special love that a husband has for his wife. There should be a special way in which he reserves a, a love and a favor for his bride that he doesn't show to anyone else. And yet, that husband should still show a common goodness and kindness to all other people who come into his path. And that's how the Lord is. And we see this every day. The oxygen we breathe is a common grace of God. 
The beauty we get to take in by the senses is a common grace of God. The nourishment you receive for life is a common grace of God. The energy and ability you have to labor and work is a common grace gift of God. The joy and laughter you have in the happy moments of life, a a good meal, a, a good friendship, a good book, those are common grace kindnesses of the Lord. And so if you're not a Christian, if you're seeking, wondering, studying, I hope you would acknowledge that every day these rays of God's general faithfulness and common grace break into your life and shine upon you day after day after day. And one day you're going to be held account to have you said thank you to the Lord for these things. And one day you're also going to be held account for the fact that all of these were showered upon you, showing the goodness of the Lord that gave you no excuse for rejecting him. And I would say to you now, if you think these are good gifts, wait till you see what is in store for you in Christ. The riches of God's faithfulness and grace are stored there in greater measure than in any place in the universe. And he offers it freely to all. So it is God's unfailing faithfulness toward us, not our faltering faithfulness to him that is the object of our faith. Well, third and finally, God's unfailing faithfulness must be the source of our hope. At this point, the promise of a son for Sarah and Abraham has been fulfilled. Yet as soon as they're relishing in that fulfillment of that particular promise, they're hit by the reality of all the rest of the promises that God has made that still remain unfulfilled. So they have one installment of fulfillment, and yet it's it's still, when you look at the grand nature of the promises, it's a small installment. And that's what verses 22 to 34 are about in Genesis 21. Again, we're going to fly over rather than dive in. And what we see in Genesis, the end of Genesis 21, is that they have their own son, but they do not yet have their own home. They have no place where they can take that son, and there's a, a mat out there that says, home sweet home for them. And these two things usually go together. That that child that you get to bring home to that room that you've established. So according to one maternity website, nesting is a natural instinct experienced by many expecting mothers to take control of the environment to create a safe, calming, and welcoming space for baby. Or as I like to say, an excuse to buy a bunch of very expensive things for your child. I'm not a cynic. I sometimes laugh with joy. Well, in Sarah's case, she has a child, but she has no place to indulge this nesting instinct. They're they're strangers in a strange land, and as of yet, there's no place that they can call home. Well, verse 22 reminds us, not only do they not have a place to call home, but they are wandering throughout the territory of Abimelech, a powerful Philistine king, and he owns that land. They do not. Yes, God has granted them favor with him, but they're starting to wonder if that favor has run out. Because in verse 25, if you look there, Abraham mentions to Abimelech that one of the wells of water that Abraham dug, which is so important, has been forcefully taken from him by Abimelech's servants. So they have no water. And Abimelech was unaware of this situation, so Abraham decides to make a deal with him, to make a covenant. He says, I'll give you some choice animals from my flock to show you that I'm not trying to pull a fast one on you. I'm not just trying to get free water. But I'm, I really legitimately am saying, I, I dug this well. And you will give me outright ownership of this well of water. And Abimelech agrees. And so they make a land covenant. And here's why this is important. This means for the very first time, Abraham and Sarah 
have their very own plot of land that they can claim to their name outright since God made the promise in Genesis 12. So what you see here in this chapter is that you have two initial installments of fulfillment to God's promise in Genesis 12. They have their very own son and they have their very own plot of land that they own outright for the first time. Yeah, and yes, it's, it's not much when you think of the massive nature of the promises. A great nation, a great land, this is, this is quite small beginnings, but it's not nothing anymore. And so Abraham and Sarah are like that child who plants a seed in the ground and they're constantly going out there watering it. They're constantly going out and checking on it. They don't see anything. They don't see anything. And then one day, the tiniest bud of green is starting to kind of break through the soil. And they run inside and say, Mom and Dad, you won't believe it. It's growing. And you go back and look out there and it's the tiniest thing you've ever seen. But it's something. And hope comes, springs anew. That's what Abraham and Sarah, they're like that kid who's planted that seed who finally sees the green bud bursting through the soil for the first time. And so to commemorate his gratitude and hope, Abraham does this in verse 33. He plants a tree. He plants something stable, that lasts, that's durable. And he calls there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. Some translations say the eternal God. So what Abraham is acknowledging is that the God who's made these promises to him is faithful yesterday, he's faithful today, and he's faithful forever. What Abraham is acknowledging is that as the life of God stretches from everlasting to everlasting, so does the character of God in its unchangeability, in its perfection. And because his character is eternal, that is a basis for hope for him and Sarah. As one author has said, styles change, cultures change, governments change, scientific theories change, people change. I mean, the other day, I was in line, I think at Chipotle, and there was a young, I think it was a high schooler in front of me. He was wearing super short shorts. When I was in high school, if you did that, you would have been laughed out of the building. That was forbidden. If, if, my, if my parents bought shorts for me that went above my knees, I would call them to repent, okay, when I was in high school. And now it's changed. It's totally the opposite. So sometimes, continuing the quote, that wasn't part of the quote. Sometimes it seems like the only thing we can be sure of is that everything changes. Doesn't it feel like that as humans? But there's one thing that has never changed and will never change. The character of God. The faithfulness of God. God's faithfulness is unfailing precisely because he is unchanging. And therefore, we can rest our hope securely on that foundation. So Abraham and Sarah had waited and waited so long for the promised child that they almost lost hope that it would happen. And then they waited and waited even longer, and they lost hope that the promise even could happen. They laughed in unbelief because they thought it was impossible for them to have a child. But then they laughed with joy when they discovered that what is truly impossible is for God to not fulfill his promises. That is what is truly impossible, for God to not fulfill his promises. God waited and waited until it was humanly impossible in order to show that nothing is impossible for the God who is unfailingly faithful. And this was not the first time that the Lord had done this, and it wouldn't be the last time. In fact, this wasn't even the most magnificent time that God demonstrated that he can do the impossible. Because when you turn to the New Testament, you open the Gospel of Luke, an angel sent by the Lord comes to a young woman named Mary 
and gives the most shocking birth announcement in all of history. Behold, Mary, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. She doesn't laugh like Sarah does, but she does ask a question. How can this be since I am a virgin? No husband, never been with a man. How can I have a child? So if Sarah's pregnancy was impossible, Mary's pregnancy is impossible squared, okay? Impossible times multiplied by itself. And here's how the angel answers the question. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. The child to be born will be called holy, meaning unlike any other child that has ever been born, the Son of God, for nothing will be impossible with God. And the angel ends his message. Why did God do it this way? Why did God send our Savior this way? To show that our salvation absolutely does not rest on human effort or human potential or human possibility, but only on the sovereign grace and faithfulness of God for whom nothing is impossible, including forgiving you of every single one of your sins and making you a new creation in Christ and pursuing you with goodness and mercy all the days of your life. Jesus is, as it were, the unfailing faithfulness of God taking on flesh and dwelling among us. Because through his life and his death and his resurrection, every work necessary for your salvation is marked finished, and every promise that God has made to you is marked fulfilled. And yes, and amen in him. So it's great Abraham's greater son, Jesus, who is the ultimate foundation of our joy, the only object of our faith and the solid source of our hope. Let's pray.